Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So it was an emotional weekend for those of you who are watching the various rugby matches for us here in South Africa. We lost against Ireland, which was... Oh, emotion was frustration. Very frustration yeah. because we thought we'd won it, really, and we should have won it. But uh, I suppose <laughs> that's what the sports of rugby or any kind of sport's all about. You always want to believe that you could do better than the people on the field. And uh, I certainly felt that after that game. But uh, anyway, whoever you're supporting, we hope your team is doing well. And we're looking forward to a pretty good uh, next couple of weeks or next four weeks ahead of the uh, Rugby World Cup. And, uh, and keeping with that theme, we're going to be talking to uh, a gentleman who probably knows more about the rules in fact he should know more about the rules and regulations and laws as you hear laws is the correct term um, in terms of uh, the rugby what you're watching at the moment and how they are first of all changed how they are how they developed over the years and some of the interesting facts about the laws so if you're into your rugby world cup this is going to be a podcast to listen for you but before we get on to that uh, we always uh, have a bit of an intro lots to talk about in terms of the news section let's uh, kick off first with the uh, Berlin Marathon and for those of you that follow a track and field or road running of any kind, um, you would have been glued to your screens or at least would have read about the wonderful performances at the Berlin Marathon. What a course it turns out to be. First of all, we saw Eliab Kipchoge trying to break the world record yet again. At halfway, he was on track to do that. And in the end, he uh, missed it by some distance, relatively speaking, for his side. Wins five Berlin Marathons in a row. And uh, we watched that. And then behind him, the real... Performance was happening with Asefa, the Ethiopian, breaking the women's... Tigus, sorry. Tigus, Tigus, Asefa, breaking the world record. Um, former 800-meter athlete, a 400-meter athlete, now moving into the marathon, ran a 2.15 before then. She breaks the world record by over two minutes. It was, I mean, I don't know, you'll know the figures better than I do, but those, that rate of improvement from the previous world record to what we saw in Berlin from Asefa was just phenomenal yeah i saw peter wayand who's been a guest on our show he's a sprint biomechanics expert said that in percentage terms it was the same as what bolt did when he ran the 958 wow so that puts or maybe it was the 969 the beijing olympic performance that was the big jump wasn't it well, otherwise it was yeah. I, I forget exactly what wayand says i'll be honest it, I, I tuned it out so relatively speaking um, that, that's what it felt like mm, sure yeah, i would have thought it was more than that I haven't read as much about it because I'm actually not interested. Why? Because I don't know what it means. Well, we know the shoe plays a role, of it course. It could be the entire thing. It could be a 217 without the shoe. <laughs> to that, to, yes. to that extent. Yes. That's the problem. That's exactly why we did a podcast called The Shoe That Broke Running. That wasn't wrong. <laughs> the title you gave it wasn't wrong. 
And that's the problem I got with it. And I treat it, and I know I'm going to sound like an old man shouting at clouds for the next five minutes. And so I apologize. But please go. Ahead. I tweeted it's something. Our I tweeted something on the weekend when they got to halfway, and I said, you know, hard to muster any sense of enthusiasm for yet another Berlin world record attempt. And to be honest with you, like, and I know you agree with me on this one, like the New Yorks and Boston's are much more exciting marathons than yes, Berlin because they're races rather yeah, than yeah. time trials. But since these shoes have come on, I, I, I just. In the beginning, it was about Nike having the only one. And so there was this massive advantage for anyone in that shoe and a disadvantage for anyone who wasn't. Then the thinking was that the other companies caught up. I'm still not sure that's entirely true, but who knows? To the extent that at least now we can say we're seeing a a contest between runners wearing different brands of shoes. The problem is, and it's a point that we've made on the show, is that there is such a large difference in responses of individuals to the same shoe or to different shoes that I still don't think that we're seeing an athletic performance independent of what the shoe does. And so it is possible. And I want to, I want to, I'm going to put like all these like notes in the show links as usual, these links in the show notes. Let me get that right. But I wanted to just give you like a couple of examples. There was a study that came out earlier this year, uh, sorry, late last year in sports medicine by Melanie Knopp, long list of authors on it, in which they compared Kenyan world-class athletes wearing four different shoes. One of them was a normal marathon flat, i.e. the good old days, <laughs> hmm. and then three different shoes. And there's a there's a graph in this document, and I think it's open source, so you'll be able to download it. Figure 3A shows you seven different lines, each line representing one athlete. Here's an athlete, we'll call it athlete A, who wearing advanced shoe tech gets no benefit compared to the f- normal flat without carbon fiber. And then wearing advanced foot tech three, so this is one, 11.4% less oxygen at the same running speed. Wow. 11%. Here's another athlete who is 11.4% worse off wearing the advanced shoe tech than in a normal flat shoe, but who gets only 2% disadvantage wearing advanced shoe tech number two. So that's a 9% difference between two shoes, both of which have got these carbon fiber soles and super lightweight foam and so forth. Mm. And then I'm going to read and I'm, I'm going to labor the point here by reading to you from the discussion of this paper, because if this Knopp paper was the only one out there, I would say 11% variation either way. Some athletes have an 11% benefit and other athletes have an 11%. I don't believe that figure. But I'm going to read to you from the from the, the discussion. The running economy of measured advanced footwear tech compared to traditional racing flats of all tested subjects revealed a large inter or between subject variability with overall values ranging from an 11.4% benefit to an 11.3% drawback. So in other words, one athlete was 11.4% more economical, another one was 11.3% less economical, more, more energy costly. To compare this to other studies, we conducted a systematic literature search. Interestingly, this revealed similar variability in the research considering the obtained confidence intervals in the conducted meta-analyses. So then I quote, three studies, Hochkammer et al. examined advanced footwear technology and established in high caliber athletes at three distinct speeds, a range of 1.97 to 6.26% benefit in energetic cost. So now you're up to 6%. Similar study by Barnes and Kids, 1.72 to 7.15% running economy benefit in highly trained runners in favor of the advanced footwear technology. And then a final study, an additional unhunted Alfander response rate of 0% to 6.4%. So even if you treat the Knopf study as an outlier, there are three different studies showing that some people get 6%. 
So Bridget Koska improves Paula Radcliffe's record by whatever it was, a minute and a half or something like that. That could be 2% thanks to the shoes. And then a Sefer 2% faster than Koska because she's get 2% more than Koska did. We mm. don't know that. So we could actually just be looking here, in my opinion, at an athlete who didn't have the shoe, Radcliffe, an athlete at the same physiological capability who's a medium responder or a typical responder to the shoe. And then on Sunday, someone who's a large responder to the shoe. And there could be someone out there still who is even even greater responder to the shoe. So I, I don't know what it means is the point. And it's lousy because when you read the forums, you go on Let's Run. And he, in fact, the founder of Let's Run emailed me last night to say, is there anything you can say in to refute the doping accusation against a surfer? And the answer is, you don't know. Because in the past, you could, there, there are three things basically. There's how much does a shoe work? There's the individual response to the shoe and then there's doping. And in the past, you could treat those first two as so small as to not matter mm -hmm. because maybe one half percent, half to one percent difference. That's what the shoe might make. Who knows? So, but you can say, okay, that's not relevant compared to its technological forefathers, Costco versus Radcliffe, Asefa versus Costco. And then that leaves basically you saying, okay, well, now we've got to look somewhere else. Is this doping or is this an exceptional athlete? Now you've reintroduced a factor that is so significant and so large that it could literally be the entire difference that we saw. And so we don't know how to interpret that. We don't even know what we should be skeptical and cynical about. It's a screw up. So, so two questions. If we assume based on the last few years since these super shoes have arrived on the scene that these we know that these shoes have seen times in every single event, you know, have improved everything on the track. We can confidently say that overall, mm. the shoe technology has made shoes and running faster. Yes. Therefore, the study that shows variability in that, it might work in certain when there's a small pool of athletes, but overall, we can say the shoes are an advantage. Yeah. If the athletes like Segei um, Asef on the weekend had an advantage, surely why is she so far ahead of everybody else? Why is. Kipchoge so far ahead of everybody else on that field is just because the field is designed just around them. I think that's the case for Sunday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there's nobody else close to them because it's not about them at all. Yeah. I know probably for, Kip, uh, for Kipchoge it probably is the case. Yeah. So you're suggesting then that, that therefore you can't say, well, there should be a whole bunch of athletes closer to them. Therefore, um, if they were all closer to them, they've all got the same technology. I mean, every single athlete in that field has access to all of that technology. Yeah, but so again, like you're they should, seeing they, they should be all on the equal plane in terms of their... If we, if we, if we forget the 11%, because it's, it's so large, I'm almost mm. skeptical. Mm. But if we say 6%, mm. if a server's getting 6% and Costco's getting 3%, that's a 3% difference in economy. Now, that's not performance. Economy and performance don't track one another one-to-one, -one, by the way. The estimates, the modeling, there's a paper by Shalaya Kip et al., that suggests that every 1% economy is worth about 0.7% performance. So mm. a 3% economy benefits a 2% running performance. 2% mm. running performance over two, 2 hours and 15 minutes is the difference we saw on Sunday. Mm. So what I'm saying is that if you gave Koska Asefa's shoes on the day she ran 2.14, she might have run 2.12.2. We don't know that. And I'm not saying she would. I'm not saying she wouldn't. I'm saying we don't know. And so if there weren't six major marathons, city marathons, plus an Olympics and a Worlds and so on, and we could get all the marathons in the world to run one marathon in fall and one marathon in autumn, and we randomized the shoes to those athletes, we would change the result of the races. That's the hypothesis I'm working on. 
because a surfer wearing Costco's shoes would not be running the time she did. And Costco well, wearing we, we a surfer's... We don't know that. Though. Exactly. Yeah, but that's yeah. the problem. <laughs> Kipchoge might be... Imagine Kipchoge in those shoes. Would he be faster? Maybe not. Maybe he'd be non-responded to the Adidas shoe. Mm. There's another study, speaking of different brands, Hubert and Jones, also from last year. And again, it'll be in the show notes. They looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight shoes. Two of them are Nikes. It's the Vaporfly and the Alphafly. They've got an Asics, a Hoka, Brooks, a New Balance, all super shoes. All, all advanced footwear tech, as per the previous study, and they compare. And I mean, I'm showing you the, I'm showing you the, the graph here. Each of these gray lines is an athlete. You'll see one athlete wearing the Hoka, 56 mils of oxygen per kilogram per minute, wearing the Nike, 52. That's a seven, eight percent difference for that athlete. It's four on fifty. That's eight percent. That athlete is better off in the Nike than in the Hoka. Mm. Here's another athlete who's basically a flat line, same economy in all four shoes, in all eight shoes. The point I'm trying to make there is that if you, you could find a scenario where two different athletes have the same running economy wearing two different shoes, and the one is 8% better than the other in a different pair, combination of shoes. It's, mm. that's, that's the problem now that the sport has got, is that we don't know. And yes, I think, I think generally the Nike is probably still the best. That's what it was in this Dubess Jones study, by the way. The energetic cost of the Nikes is, is lower than the others because they were the first movers. They should have an advantage. And I do think the other brands are catching up. I mean, the Acefa performance is not a Nike performance. It's Adidas. Yeah. And that's the lightest shoe on the market, which mass makes a difference. I'll show you that in a moment as well. But the, but the, the challenge is... That if you gave, if you randomized the shoe, let me start this way. I still believe that the individual response to the shoes is larger than the difference between athletes. So if you take a Sefa versus Costco, okay, Costco at her best. I don't think she's the athlete she was four years ago now. But if you take the top five or six women, all of whom are now capable of faster than 217, even 216, I think the shoe randomization changes the result of a race between those two those athletes. And the same with the men. Yesterday, it wouldn't have made a difference because I think Kipchoge is naturally good enough to beat all those other athletes in that race. But if he's in the race like he was in Boston and if he's in a race like London was this year where he's got some guys who can run a sub-60 second half potentially, then it's a shoe that determines the outcome of the result, a race. And a shoe determines a world record by two minutes, potentially. Now, I'm not discounting that it could be doping. It could, it could well be. You know how sport is, I mean. But yeah. what? But I'm thinking on the doping. Like, what? What could she have access to that no one else has got? That's that powerful. Mm. I think it's more plausible that it's the shoe than doping. Mm. Eh? Maybe it's a bit of both. I don't know. But everyone's kicked off. Ah, oh, you can't trust this. I've seen on social media. This can only be explained by doping, and the shoe's a distraction. Based on the data and a six percent variation, we could have just seen the best responder we've ever seen to these shoes run in 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 them on Sunday. You know, or because they're the, a new model of yeah, a particular so shoe. So it's the Adidas Evo, Adios <laughs> Evo 1. Um, they, or was it the there two? Some, well, <laughs> so there's, the, 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 the two, supposedly, the only difference between the two and the one is the fact that the two has um, a rubber outer sole, which makes it better in the rain. Yeah. So that's the only difference. But it's it's their top of the range. It's called the $500 shoe, 400 pounds for that shoe. You can go to the shop and buy it now, um, supposedly. Um, and it's, it's been a lot of hype about it. And of course, for Adidas, 
in the war against Nike, this is now their poster girl and, yeah. and poster boy, actually. Yeah, that, that's their, a, I saw a number of things on social media. Maybe they'll publish the data on this one now that they, they feel like it works and we won't just get empty marketing claims, actually some data on them. Yes. But like, the, by yes, the way- I'd love that, to see their research on that shoe yeah, and mean, to see what it proved inside their lab. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. is the lab data, the, you know, because with the Vaporfly, we had lab data and yeah. then we even spoke about Adidas and they said that it was as good, but there was no lab data coming out in the peer-reviewed look in world. This this Knopf study, by the way, based on the logos they use in the <laughs> paper, you can see they've all got this. So you know that these these mm. shoes that they tested in this study, Advanced Footwear 1, 2, and 3, these are all Adidas shoes. Right. They never name them in the paper, but they put the little logo on the little, <laughs> on the little images, which is funny. But I, I just, even at, even at half the range that's been documented, you could explain variation in performance of two minutes entirely down to the shoe. And that's to me is not right. Yes, because we don't we don't know now whether we're watching the best athletes or just exactly. the best shoes or the best responders. Yeah. Exactly. And again, I'm not interested in a surfer compared to Ingrid Christensen. I don't mind a surfer's comparison. Even even to Paula Radcliffe is far enough in the past. It's like it's just twenty years, not huh? right? Two thousand three yeah. Radcliffe, I think. And it took it was. a long time for that record to be broken. Even that's fourteen years. Even that's enough of a generation gap that we don't really expect humans to be at the same level as they were in 2000. Mm. Well, actually, on the track, it's not far off, but still, might be other factors in play back then. But the comparison between Sefa and Koska is so close that it does actually kind of matter. Mm. You know? and, and it's the same thing, Kipchoge versus Gabriel Selassie. You spoke to Gabriel Selassie. He said he'd run two minutes faster in these shoes. No, well, he said he'd break the world record if he was running in today's shoes. Yeah. yeah. So... And that's a comparison that is necessary because it is valid for running enthusiasts to wonder who's the best of all time within one generation's apart. Mm. <laughs> I'm not interested in Kipchoge against Jim Peters. That's a, no one cares what, about what happened over 80 years worth of performance evolutions. Mm. 70, 70 in this case. But this is, this is, I'm watching this race and I'm seeing a woman run. She, ba- she basically broke her half marathon PB twice in a race. Well, she would have won the world championship with the half marathon last year with a second half performance, yes. which is so, absolutely extraordinary. And this is where there is some grounds for some questions around Asefa because she hardly ever races. She's got three yeah. marathons. One in Saudi Arabia was like a 2.33, a 2.15, and a 2.12, 2.11 yeah. something. It's sub yeah. 2.12, right? I looked on the IWF profile for her. There's a couple of 10Ks and a couple of halves. Her half marathon PB is slower than both halves that she ran yesterday in one marathon race. That's how (laughs) profound. Her 10K PB is barely faster than she ran for all four. Mm. Her her fastest 10K is now a 10K PB. And when you see someone not racing all that often, then the question becomes not so much do they have access to a drug no one else has, but do they have the freedom to use it because they're just not in the testing pool often enough. Now, you'd hope a surf is being tested as part of the passport, hmm. but it would be handy to know because if I knew, for instance, that a surf has been tested twice since Berlin last year, as opposed to 17 times, that would change my confidence in the result. Would you agree? Yes. So it would be, it'd be useful to know that. But these these nowhere to somewhere performance improvements from 230 something to 211, it's hmm. outrageous. Hmm. Is that... So I can understand why people are questioning the doping, and I wouldn't certainly wouldn't set it aside. I'd love to know how many samples she's provided for the passport and how often they have access to her in her testing camp mm-hmm. and base and so on. 
So her time I, would have been a qualifying time for the men's marathon <laughs> in Paris next year. That's that's what's amazing. It's a qualifying time for the men's marathon well, she, next year. She, she was running for a long time with Jared Ward, who's a very well-known US runner who's running the men's Olympic marathon yeah. fairly successfully. He was second American home. <laughs> Yesterday and in Berlin. And running there. <laughs> Yeah. So and, and in fact, and speaking of, I saw the gap between her and the current world record is like eight point something percent. It's now the closest woman's world record to a men's time. You know, we often talk about that male female gap. This is the smallest it's been. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so like, yeah, I mean, it's a performance up in lights, but mm-hmm. no one knows what it means because again, Radcliffe's two fifteen, Cascas two fourteen, and this could all be the result of the same physiology, but different responses to the shoes. So the same, the same running physiology, mm. but me- optimized by mechanics to different degrees, with the result that if you'd randomized the shoes, the result wouldn't exist, and that's not running. Mm. So anyway, I, I know I sound like a cranky, grumpy old man, but this is the situation that was created, and it was inevitable. It was entirely foreseeable that this was going to happen. There's a couple of things that I I think is worth considering, and we discussed this uh, while we were watching the race yesterday of our WhatsApps. But first of all, she's got. Just quite amazing pedigree. She was the first athlete to ever break two minutes for the 800 and run a sub-220 marathon. So she's got speed in her legs, which very few people at that level have got. She's a 54-minute, 54-second, 400-meter runner. Yeah. But Second of all, the shoes that she's wearing, we know about cold technology. We know about the foams that they're using. You know, they use all these, I think the foam technology in Adidas is called Light Strike. This is called a Light Strike Pro that Light they use. Pro, yeah. Um, so, and you know, it weighs 138 grams or something which mm. is fully 70 80 grams less than the other adidas shoe mm. i think the guard lets run robert johnson said to me it's 50 odd grams less than the best nike shoe mm. that's that's a big difference is that a significant difference it is and so actually our sense of over multiple footfalls that is a lot so again conflicting evidence in this regard there's a study by huachkama et al from when they were in colorado where they looked at it and they found that every 100 grams added is 1.1 percent economy difference so that's a pretty small difference because I guess it's 50 grams. So it's probably in, in that context, it doesn't quite even make 1%. Now, mm. given the range of responder, non-responder to the shoe might be 6%, a 1% difference due to mass is trivial. It's probably washed out to the extent that if you're a non-responder, you wouldn't know the mass benefit even existed. Yeah. If you were responded to the shoe and to the mass difference, then you get a, du- and then you, well, it's not double the effect, but you get an additive effect. There's another study, incidentally. Uh, let me just get the name for you exactly so that I don't misquote it. One of the authors is our mutual friend, Jordan Santos. Remember him? Mm-hmm. Used to be based here in Cape Town. That's right. And it's headed by Victor Rodrigo Carranza. And in, it's called Influence of Shoe Mass on Performance and Running Economy. I asked Jordan to actually send me a short voice note on that. So I wanted to play that in because Jordan can then explain to you exactly what they found. Because you'll discover that their performance change, running economy change, is quite a lot larger than what Kip found. So in this respect, maybe this does indicate that the mass reduction on the shoe is at least partly responsible for why this time was faster. But again, it's footwear, right? So this is Jordan talking about that study. Hi everyone, this is Jordan Santos Concejero from the University of the Basque Country. My friend Ross Tucker asked me to record a short voice note on some research I published recently with my colleagues from the University of Castilla-La Mancha, Spain, where we explore how adding extra mass to a pair of shoes can influence running economy and performance. In order to answer this question, we tested 11 well-trained runners, six men and five women, and by will train, I mean runners with average 10K times ranging from 32 to 34 minutes. 
all the runners came to the laboratory four different times. During their first visit, the athletes completed an incremental maximal running test on a treadmill, which was used to calculate not only their VO2 max, but also their second ventilatory threshold, which was the speed that we used to establish the intensity for running economy measurements later on. During their second, third and fourth visits, the athletes completed a time to exhaustion test at their VO2 max intensity. These time to exhaustion trials were preceded by a specific warm-up consisting on three sets of five minutes at 75, 85 and 95% of the second ventilatory threshold. During this warm-up is where we measured running economy as energy cost. Each of these days, Athletes were using, in a randomized order, shoes with a different mass. There was a control condition with no extra mass and two experimental conditions where we added either 50 grams or 100 grams to the shoes. What we found is that running economy worsened dramatically, actually up to 10% worse when adding 100 grams to the shoes. Interestingly enough, the time to exhaustion was also much worse, around 22% when comparing the control condition to the experimental condition with 100 grams of extra mass. So the results were quite clear. The SUS mass matters, and quite a lot, actually. Our research is not new, though, as other studies published in the past actually explored the same question and found that adding around 100 grams of extra weight to a SU implied just around 1% worse running economy. So how can we explain such big difference between that 1% and our results, where, which are way, way higher? One option might be the protocols used. For example, other studies have used set speeds to measure running economy, which might imply different relative exercise intensities for each runner, especially if the sample used was not homogeneous. In our case, since we used fixed percentages of the individual ventilatory threshold, we ensured that, that all athletes were running at the same relative exercise intensity. Similarly, other studies have reported running economy just as the oxygen cost and not as the energy cost of running, which has been reported to be way more sensitive. In fact, when we expressed our results just as oxygen costs, the differences between conditions disappeared. In any case, the conclusion, the conclusion is that according to our findings, the sum mass is a key factor for endurance running performance. So what seems clear to me is that when all the other factors influencing running economy are equal or at least similar, let's say the thickness of, our, of the reactive foams used in the midsole, the stiffness of the carbon fiber plates and so on, the brand that achieves all that with a lighter shoe will have a big advantage over its competitors. So thank you so much for discussing our research. Well, there we go. I mean, that's kind of saying what you were saying in terms of that shoe. It's got yeah. all the technology, but it's got the weight. And I'm surprised at those numbers in terms of the advantages yeah, for a less weight shoe. So am I. Like a 10% running economy. And they measure running economy not as oxygen cost of transport. That's in, that, you know, It makes that point, right, is mm. that they measured it actually as like watts as opposed to how much oxygen you use. I reckons that's more sensitive. I mean, 10%, that, that seems to me to be almost unbelievably high but it makes the point right so between the knop study where there's an 11 percent benefit for one athlete in an advanced shoe and none in another mm. <laughs> and this where you're saying like no one knows where we are like yeah. we are we are completely lost 
with respect to anchoring the performance against known standards. That's the problem. And so when we, and a world record is exactly that. It's an anchor point against which we assess today relative to the past. That no longer exists. So if I, if I was king for, the, for two, three years, I would have every marathon without a stopwatch for the next three years because they don't mean anything. And then in 2026, we can reset and we can say, right, now we go again, start afresh. Because right now, like, and it's an, it is, some patrons have asked this, it is inevitable that a man is going to run sub 201. Mm. And it's not going to be Kipchoge. I think Kipchoge is now at best hanging on for Paris. I don't know what your mm. impression is having watched him. Well, he's still running an unbelievable time in it Berlin. Is, but not yes. bad, but not he's by not his own his, standards. Not, not his level, yeah. And he got slower and slower and slower from halfway. I yeah. just... I just get the feeling, like, as good as he is, no one's immune to time. No. <laughs> but it's going to be the guy, I think it's the guy who won London, who's going to be the sub-201 guy, mm. if Kipchoge ever leaves Berlin. Because now the problem is he's occupied that race. Mm. And then it's going to be a matter of time, and by 2030, there'll be a sub-2 in a non-artificial gimmicky circumstance. Mm. But it's it's probably still the equivalent of a 202 from 10 years ago, five years ago. Mm. And so I'm surprised you're making a sub two in 2030. I think it's going to be quicker than that. No, it might well be. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Based but on the technology that shoes are developing at, it's yeah, extraordinary. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Lighter foams, I suppose that's the thing. Now that we know that that is a significant difference, that maybe that is the goal. The technology is maxed out potentially. Yeah, so but the, the next shoe is going to be 85 grams, mm. another 50 off. Yeah. But without compromising the, because at some point you need the carb and you need the stiffness and you need the thickness of the foam. Yeah, so some it has, there has to be a ceiling somewhere, no? Yeah. <laughs> but who knows where it is? Yeah. But it's not a human ceiling anymore. Mm. The human ceiling hasn't, in my opinion, the human ceiling has not changed since. Mm. Gabriel Selassie and then Kipchoge he's, he's the greatest marathoner please don't get me wrong here mm. so I would be perfectly willing to say that even in racing class Kipchoge would be faster than Gabriel Selassie mm. but not by this much mm. so the human ceiling is definitely not as low or well higher mm. whatever orientation you like to come at this from as the record performances seem to indicate and this 211 is not a 211 even four or five years ago yeah it's Formula One, really, isn't it? Exactly. The and car that, makes the difference. And then we have a well, dispute about which shoe she's in. That's, that's yeah. not running. Yeah. No, there was, right? No, there was, there was a debate. Like, is that shoe legal? Is it not legal? Is it available? Is it a prototype? Look, what's the difference between the mm. Evo 2 and the Evo 1? Like that. You don't watch running to have those conversations, in my mm. opinion. Mm. So, it's good uh, for the manufacturers, I guess. I don't know. And then, and then the last thing I'll say is, if she hasn't been in the testing pool because she was relatively unknown prior to Berlin, maybe a little bit more test. If she now gets massive scrutiny and never runs faster than 2.15, again, we'll know. You'll have your answer. Because <laughs> now she has to be under the microscope. Yeah. She, she'll have, she has to be tested like every two weeks now for mm. the next overlong. Mm. If she never wins another marathon and never breaks 2.15, we'll have her answer. Yeah. Well, hopefully we have a positive answer rather than a negative one, but it's difficult to sometimes yeah. see that beyond uh, some of the stuff that's been going on and not only uh, track and field and road running and that sort of thing. There's obviously been the Kenyan issue recently, but anyway. Yep. Yeah, uh, no, one's even, no one's even asking about an Ethiopian no. issue. Yeah. Kenya, Kenya, Kenya. Like, yeah. I guarantee well, Kenya you. Kenya first and second in Berlin. They were second Kenyan as well behind, um, behind, behind Kipchoge. Kipchoge. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. on the men's side, they're still winning marathons. Mm. Mm. be interesting. Five years from now, you'll be able to analyze times and ask whether the mm. scrutiny of 2021 to slowed Kenyans down, but not Ethiopians. And that mm. in itself would be interesting. Why would Kenya slow down and not Ethiopia? Well, mm. 
Anyway, so there's lots there's lots yet to come, I think. Quick thoughts. I know we're running out of time, um, but uh, we haven't had a chance to really chat about uh, the Vuelta España, mm. um, which was won by uh, Sepp Kuss. Um, I mean, for those of you that followed the drama, it was like a f- sort of some sort of um, uh, soap opera going on out there. It was, it was like, all it was about like Visma, but there's been some discussions about yeah, succession. Actually, you watched that show. Yes, it's like that, in, keeping it's in the family way. and deciding who gets to have the power and the money. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it feels yeah. like. Yes, that's a good analogy for those of you who watched that uh, television show. It's a great analogy. So Chris wins. Of course, there's controversy because initially they don't let him win and eventually they decide with two stages to go, they're going to be in support of him and they let him win and he's a popular winner. Everybody loves it. The American market suddenly opens up and we've got more people watching the sport in the States, which mm-hmm. is good for cycling. But again, there's rumors about teams merging and all sorts of changes for next year, isn't there? Yeah, the one came out yesterday saying Yamaha Visma and Quickstep. Yeah, because Yamaha's losing this. Well, Yamaha Visma's yeah, they've got losing one more sponsors. year, I think, on that one. And then oh, it's gone. And yeah. so, I mean, now, now you're going to get a super team. Like, yeah. what will they do with the riders? There must be 50 contracted riders plus at least one to one staff, right? Yeah. What will they. I, I don't know. I mean, and I hope it doesn't happen. The last thing cycling needs is a super team no. that's got four out of the best five stage races yeah. and two out of the. Three out of the best four one day guys. Well, it killed the Vuelta. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the big thing about the Vuelta is I still don't know who the best cyclist was. No. I watched this thing for we three weeks. I still don't know who the best rider was. <laughs> I think it was Vinegar. I think so. Yeah. I but I listened to kick. Yeah, anyway. but Vinegar, Vinegar had, if Vinegar had license, I think he'd put more than a kick on. Robert. Maybe. But Maybe. but the th- that's the problem again, right? I listened to a podcast, the, the Move one with mm. JB and, and Braniel, oh. and now they got a guy called Spencer Martin, yeah. talking about they think it was Seb Kuz. Mm. I was like, okay, maybe you guys are watching a different race. Um, but I don't know. Mm. And I never got to see it. 21 days later, I still don't know who the best rider is. That's not what a Grand Tour is about, in my opinion. So the, the problem is that if one team has a monopoly on talent because of money, and now this merger... It doubles it potentially. It's just, yeah, it's not, yeah. not a healthy situation, I don't think. The only good thing about that last week, once um, those Yumba Visma guys were occupying the top three positions, was it gave free reign to Rimke Vinipal to just go out and attack every single day, and he animated mm. every stage. And it was yeah. great fun to watch, including because the final stage and that the criteria. It unbelievable. Was like, it was how great often does the last stage not get won by a mass sprint? Yes. There's a bunch. Yeah. Well, and was, he was the one that basically. Did that? I would love to see the watts on that lead out. Yes, because it wasn't even a lead out; it was more like an attack in the last eight hundred meters. <laughs> Unbelievable! So that was entertaining. Mm. But now imagine him in that Yumba. It's just, it's just. Mm. Uh, no, I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. Or if it does happen, he needs to not be part of the deal. Mm. And Roglic needs to go to Lidl Trek or whatever Trek Lidl, whatever it's called now. Um, Cycling yeah. needs I to have five. I would think must 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 be uh, in in the, in the market for a move somewhere as a no. as a main contender. I reckon. I, I reckon they said to him, "We let you win this, but you sign, you sign three more years." Three more and years. You would have been more than happy to do that. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Geez, I can't see them letting, and then he leaves them. No, no. Hey, they must but you'll be in demand. Big time. But um, he certainly is big time. Uh, yeah, but he's not going to beat Vinegar and Roglic on a good day. No, I don't think no. not in the Tour de France form. Vinegar oh. was in. Vinegar wasn't at the Tour level. No, um, I agree. And I think he must know that. I mean, he'll know that better than anyone. Mm. Fascinating to know what the conversations were like with those guys. Funny well, there was a documentary at the Vuelta. 
The, the social media outcry when Roglic won that stage, I think it was stage 17 and uh, dropped. The one uh, on uh, Anglerou. Yeah, I mean, mm. it was, the, 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 I saw a lot of the social media around that and it was, all the sentiment was absolutely for Kuss and against mm. these horrible guys, Roglic and Vinegar, who were literally just annihilating the guy that had helped them. So mm-hmm. it was a really bad PR story. And we talked about that on the podcast and literally overnight, it just went from being like that to suddenly, oh, we're all riding all together in big, you know, you saw the celebrations at the end and the celebrate, but there's no doubt that a Roglic and a Vinegar don't want to go there and finish second or third. They, you think they, they're going there to win. Those two guys gave up a lot to let Chris win that race. Absolutely. The, but they both were instructed of, both to Both of them would have been two-time Grand Tour and one-year winners. Yeah. And that hardly ever happens. Like, that's yeah. legacy stuff all by itself. Mm. And they gave that up. I heard one podcast guy <laughs> describe that stage as dropping puppies off a balcony. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of emotional. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure somewhat tongue in cheek. He's a he's a funny guy, but like that's how that's the sort of reaction. It was visceral, emotional, sympathetic reaction towards Chris. Absolutely. I just, I mean, imagine every stage race, every every GC, every one day race having one team with three or four guys. Yeah. It's already like that with Van Aert, Laporte. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, not for, not for me. Thanks. Well, I hope it's not going to happen. Mm. Right, so let's move on to our topic of discussion for today. And our guest today is going to be a man who probably knows, as we said at the intro to this podcast, more about the laws of rugby than anybody else. Um, Keith Lewis, who is the World Rugby Laws Coordinator. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, he is, as you'll hear in the interview, a very passionate man about the laws. And to give you some insight, we were going to talk to him for half an hour. We say we're going to talk to him for half an hour. We're going to have a discussion after that about the changes in rugby over the years. But I found everything that he said absolutely fascinating. And I had so many questions, probably more than we had time for, to actually get into the discussion. But it it was fascinating. You think, well, the laws of rugby, how boring can you be? But it really was not that at all. I find it fascinating. I've had the same education over the last seven or eight years since I joined World Rugby. Because like you, you know, we all watch the game. You know the fundamentals. But what I've learned, obviously, now, because I'm in the player welfare space with World Rugby, is that the law is the vehicle by which player welfare is enforced. It's either enforced or changed. You think about high tackle. And when you start getting into it, you discover that these laws are so complex and so interconnected and so unpredictable because five different people will assess a law and with the right set of incentives, by which I now mean coaches, are trying to find a way around a law or to use the law or to exploit the law or to find a loophole in the law, (laughs) one of the above. And then it causes all manner of consequences, second, third, fourth order consequences that you couldn't have anticipated. And every single thing in in rugby is like that. And that's what you'll hear with with Keith. He'll talk to you about fixing a scrum by changing a line-out. And you learn about the changes that have been made over the course of the game, uh, the decades to try and change the way the game looks, but they've had welfare implications. Or you change the welfare-related laws and then you change the way the game looks in response. And so mm. the, the sport is, and it gets criticized for this, you know, people will say the problem with rugby is its complexity and the fact that the ref is so influential to the outcome. It's also, it's it's both the worst and best thing about the sport by far. I love the the enormous complexity it's like it's like the world's most complex puzzle and you're trying to figure it out and keith gives us quite cool insights into that and as you'll hear at the end he does encourage uh or you all to contribute to what he thinks should be law changes in the game so if you do have some thoughts after listening to the podcast uh, we'll look, look, look put all of his details in our show notes yeah get... especially that one for the patrons i send yeah. a newsletter out with a, with a podcast when it comes out 
And that discussion always gets 100 comments anyway. And I'm making a specific appeal here because I know many of you Patreon listeners are, are rugby nuts and you're insightful rugby nuts with suggestions around law. I promise you I'll send every single one of them to Keith. And maybe and he's keen by, to hear that, isn't he? He is. He's, and that's one of the best things about him. He's a mm-hmm. very good and he's very open and he's a good educator and explainer of law. And he wants to hear them and he will hear them when you submit them on Patreon. Well, here he is, Keith Lewis. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right, so welcome Keith Lewis, the World Rugby Rules Coordinator. Mm. I mean, it, it, Wrong. No? Laws. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not it's actually an, it's a it's a common mistake which yes. is actually worth starting on why i actually don't care i know some people get very excited about the fact that we have rules and not laws i still don't quite know what the difference is but they do right yeah they do let's get it right first and then you can explain <laughs> to me why that's such a big difference so it's keith lewis rugby world rugby laws coordinator and what what is the difference between rules and laws when it comes to coordinating them um, I actually not entirely sure I know the difference to that, Mike. It's it's a it's an ongoing debate within the rugby world that um, people who get very um, uptight about the fact that we have laws, not rules, in play. Um, I think we, we've got a law book. Other other sports have have a mixture of either rules or laws. Um, I think historically, over time, when the when the the book was created back in the early nineteen hundreds, late eighteen eighteen hundreds, um, there were lawyers involved. So I su- suspect they went with the uh, the more obvious law version. But unless uh, unless you have any um, other insight to as to what the difference may or may not be, I I know I know that it comes up a lot. That's why it's kind of like a yeah. almost humorous way to start. <laughs> and if you ever say it's against the rules, someone if you said that on social media, you will get five people correct you. No, 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 no. Right. The laws. It's laws. Right. And I remember when we did an exercise on the simplification of the law book a while back now, this is probably five, six years ago now. The concept was that laws provide a framework whereas rules are more specific. And so rugby operates on a set of laws, which is, I think, emphasized by the sport itself to make allowances for the subjective interpretation of the law by the referee, as mm-hmm. opposed to it hit your foot in hockey, for instance, yeah. it's a foot foul. It, you took more than however many steps in basketball, it's traveling, you know, like, so those, those sports have rules and rugby's always positioned itself to have laws almost to play up the subjective nature of how the sport is officiated would you does that sound reasonable that, or make, that makes total sense and, and i think the, the conversation often then flows off the back of that is is do we want rules that are 100 percent officiated all the time or do we want a, a framework of laws that gives the referee some um and, and the players some scope to create a game out of out of it to the best of everyone's ability on, on that day um, and i think that the worst thing that rugby needs is is referees refereeing everything that is in the law book because that would create um, a terrible experience for everybody i think yeah and everyone wants subjective openness until they don't right and they say Correct. we want consistency 
And then you say, okay, we'll give you a rigid consistency. No, no, we don't want that either. This is the thing with, we've heard it from Dobson. We've heard it before. <laughs> it's a dilemma for the sport, actually. Well, I and mean, that's, that, that's going to keep that, going that, forever. That, that's the interesting question. So let, let's start at the beginning here, because I'm interested to know what your job is, because there's a couple of questions that form off that. What What is the job? What do you have to do on a day-by-day or week-to-week basis? That's a good question. So it's, it's, a, it's a job I've been in for just over 18 months now. Um, and it was the, it's the first time that World Rugby's had this somebody in this seat in this particular role. Um, and I think that the, the concept behind it is that having, I guess, a single point of contact who kind of lives it. And and, and, my, and my background is from a refereeing perspective. So I, I've, been, I've been refereeing here at community level and up to sort of semi-elite level for, for 25 years. And having somebody who's totally focused on, on that area of the game um, is is what was needed there because in the past, I guess it was done by bits and bits of bits and pieces of other people who had other jobs to do as well. So perhaps things were put on tables and discussed, and then nobody thought about well, if that says that there, what's the implication on that bit over there? Um, and just to, to kind of bring it all together, but also um, from a pure practical perspective, we've got a, a suite of assets. Um, literal things so the the printed law book we've got the app we've got the website um, and just keeping that online and and up to date and and fixed and making sure it's fit for purpose as a suite of assets so we're going going to the technology and the ownership of the product if we like but then we have the the much bigger piece of figuring out what on earth is in the book and the words and how it's structured and how we um, and how we set that up for the game and it's that we've been evolving rugby since 1886. Um, we are, we will keep evolving for the next hundred and something, whatever years in the shape that we we've got. Um, and we've always got that balance to play that look rugby, rugby itself is evolving. So therefore the laws need to keep up with that. Um, we need to keep an eye on all the different elements and see what changes and whether we do need to, to, to look at things as we go. Um, or even look to the future. So we're, if we're not happy, if we take the thing, look, if we're not happy with the game that we're seeing right now, what do we want the game to look like in five, 10 years time when we hit USA World Cup territory? We've got a big window now to, to answer that question. So what do we? What does the game want the game to look like? And therefore, how do we put it into law so that we get to that end product or we, we, tweak, we tweak and finesse as we go? And that's what um, all, the, all the law books over time have done, have kind of taken the the principles of all the elements of our game and added bits, taken bits away. We've figured, uh, seen what, what that, what the result of that has been. Um, and there is everyone happy with the end product. And the answer is always yes, but, um, and then we've got to figure out what that, mm. what the end of that sentence looked like and how we get to it. So, I mean, are you able to precede in a, in a couple of sentences, what your mandate is? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's straightforward to, to, to create the, the laws that the game wants to, to play by. That's really straightforward. And and when, when we talk about the game, that's where we get lots of different opinions that we've, we've just been talking about. And, and and whose opinion do we do we look at and who do we how do we listen to all opinions and then filter it all down? And I think that's my personal challenge for the next four, four eight, 12 years is to f- take all the input that we get. And it'd be interesting to see what your uh, podcast listeners come up with uh, once we've finished uh, so to see what ideas people have um, filter them through a, a sort of governance process um, to figure out what the good ones are what has traction what might lead to what to think about the unintended consequence of any change um, or, or figure out potentially we want the game we want an element of the game to do this how do we create laws that achieve this and sometimes that will involve us thinking a little bit differently 
Um, for example, I was thinking about the other day, if we want to solve the problem of scrum uh, of players scrumming for a penalty, is the solution to that to change the line-out law? Because at the moment, if a, if a scrum is deliberately collapsed, they get a penalty. Why do they, why do, they do that? Because they're going to kick for the corner and have a line-out. Well, if we want to solve the scrum penalty, perhaps we need to change the line out put in at that penalty. So that's mm. that might that's just a random example, and I say we're going to do that. But you see, we, sometimes it's not as straightforward as saying there's a law here we don't like. We're going to change it. We need mm. to think about what's the thing that we're trying, what's the problem we're trying to solve, and what are the different solutions that might get us to to that solution. So there's lots of different things, um, uh, ideas that people may have. We just got to think about how we bring all that together. So and the reason why I asked the question around the mandate, and this is coming from an outsider's perspective, mm. is the mandate the safety of the players or the entertainment of the game? Because those are two sometimes conflicting yeah. approaches, aren't they? I mean, uh, absolutely. Is, is there uh, one um, way of that, putting that in a sentence? I, th- I think you just did put it in a, in a, in a, in a sentence. Is that we've got we've got principles around what the game looks like, but we've got to make sure that player welfare is obviously the number one priority that's in there. But we we keep a game that has a fair contest for possession in all the different areas of the game. And that's where we get into the rugby's too complex discussion is that no other sport has the number of contestable areas that rugby union has. Um, So therefore, if you've got a contestable area, you need to have things that both sides in that contest can and can't do, which therefore creates the complexity that we're, we're doing. Um, so there's a slightly separate thing. And in order to make it a, a contest for possession and the entertainment value comes into that, um, that's the challenge. And sometimes we we will have to go down one of the, that's one side of that seesaw and, and swing out the other one. Um, and, and that's the, the, the conversation we need to have. And it's not easy. It's, it's really not easy. And we see that um, all the time during games. So we're, we're ending up with incidents that are high on but that are high on player welfare issues but by changing them you might end up with a, a game that's less competitive and that's a balance we need to to to, to look at and and where our benefit as world rugby comes into this is that we can look at take some of those examples and some of those discussions that we need to have and then speak to our, our unions around the world say look we've got this idea we want we think this might be a solution to it but we need somewhere to trial it so who can offer us a under 18 competition for six weeks to try this thing? Who can give us a um, a league, a closed league competition, uh, uh, adults, um, adult men, adult women, whatever it might be, so that we can actually put these things into operation, see what the outcome is, track the data, look at all the analysis. And, and then at the end of it, we've got a really good bunch of data that, that looks at the player welfare benefit, the entertainment benefit, the game output benefit. Um, and then that enables us to make better decisions when it comes to the world rugby governance process, rather than the, I guess, the misperception that people get together in a, a hotel or lobby in, in Dublin and decide these massive um, game-changing issues. That's it certainly may well have been the case 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago, but it certainly isn't now because we've got all the data that, that goes into it that helps us make those those good decisions about what the game might look like. Yeah, so we're getting on now to how law has changed. And I can't speak for anything before 2015, but the first law meeting I ever went to was at London in 2015. And it was really very interesting. It was it was a group of people who months before had been invited to submit proposals. 
And so then there was a process that was initiated. Every rugby playing union in the world submitted proposal. I remember seeing them from Chile, from the Netherlands, mm. from Kenya, from Uganda, from South Africa, from New Zealand. And that law group at that time was made up of high-level coaches and referees and high-performance folk from different unions. For instance, Steve Hansen and Dave Rennie were there. David Nusifora, who's now a high-performance guy in Ireland, was there. Rob Andrew represented England. We were represented by Sean Rue, who was, I think it was then, I might have gotten confused between meetings. So it was a pretty high-powered group of people in the rugby space, not, not men in suits and ties eating caviar is the point I'm trying to get at. And the I don't know what it was like before that, but I was at that meeting as the welfare representative. And so every single law that was discussed had to be framed as what is this law proposal trying to achieve? How will that be assessed? And what are the potential unintended consequences of the law change in a player welfare domain? Mm. And so there were the, those were the three requirements of everyone who made a submission. And if you couldn't answer those, then the law change wasn't really considered and so eventually you get a short list you get 150 odd submissions trimmed down to 15 trimmed down to three or four and i remember some of them were like there was a proposal from one union to put lines every meter on the field so it would look like an american football field because that would allegedly help the referee judge off sidelines more effectively than currently so didn't get accepted right because too much too much admin too, and too little purpose but there were others like should the mall be allowed to collapse there was a mm -hmm. proposal and then it gets voted on by the different unions and eventually that one didn't pass at that time but it has been trialed in the past so i guess the point i'm trying to make is that they try as much as possible to be considered and systematic and evidence-based but it's not always possible because the sport is too complicated and too complex to anticipate what a very smart coach is going to figure out six months from now in response to what you did today and then 18 months beyond that you'll find something that changed and no one foresaw that thing coming so it is that it's both it's both one of the most frustrating elements and one of the best parts of rugby is how complex it is because of and you'll see this you'll see this in tactical ways like we see south africa play ireland over the weekend past we're going to see it now much more frequently in france tactical battles are all about exploitation of law mm. that's what it comes down to my strengths your weaknesses within the framework of the law that's what i'm trying to exploit and it's it's great but i can see why it's a dilemma yeah yeah. I mean, just it, another layer that I think we need to just bear in mind is is that rugby is a global game um, played both on our TV screens but also on our on our fields mm. wherever wherever we're based um, and we have a debate amongst the sport to, to make sure that we don't change the game because of the elite and therefore everyone else has to I guess suffer or, or have to change as well so there is that that ongoing debate about the differences between community rugby and elite rugby as well. And we need to make sure that we make, make sure that the, the discussions that are happening within world rugby structure includes both elements there, or at least has a lens of how is this all going to play out in the community game? And that's another thing, an element that I know you asked me before about what my mandate is, but um, as a community referee who on a Saturday afternoon, I'll be running around on my own without any support from Touch judges, no, definitely no TV. And that kind of thing. How how do I referee on a Saturday um, when I'm on my own, as well as um, the the folk who are in in in, in France this week with the six seven elements of help plus plus TMO plus bunker plus sighting plus judiciary and all that kind of stuff. I'm on my own on Saturday, and we we have that ongoing debate about elite and community game, and should we should it be a difference? 
So, I mean, just looking, Ross has touched a bit on the fact that the you know he's he hasn't been involved pre twenty fifteen, and you've just mentioned you've been involved for the last eighteen months. Looking back at the sport, and maybe you can almost take a sort of a more objective view of this and look and look from the outside looking in. Do you think that the rule, the changes in the laws over the years have benefited the game in terms of player safety more than the entertainment of the game? Or do you think, in other words, has the entertainment level of the game suffered because of the laws brought in to protect player safety? Man, um, there's a question. There's a question and a half, and I think I think we put that out to a public vote, and everyone will have a thousand <laughs> views on on both of those sides of there. Um, I think it's it it shows the balance that we have across the game, and and things have changed so much over time for the better, for the safety of the game. Um, and some of the some of those things in the past, we've kind of moved so far beyond them. We just accept that they were they may have changed the game. They've changed the game for better. We talk about the, the scrum engagement process, which when I started in, in the late 1990s was just me saying the word engage in the hope that something good then happened off the back of that. And uh, back then the, the word engage was, I remember it being in law as being not a command, but an instruction that they, they can go when they're ready. Whereas not in a million years, that was abs- it was absolutely the command that we were going to then have eight hit players contacting with eight different eight more players at speed and force so the changes that we've been through on the scrum engagement for example have benefited player welfare because we've got a really controlled controlled environment control environment that that the steps that we need to get make sure that scrum happens safely but still allows a contest for the ball um, and still allows a good platform for people to, to get on with it and i've got the words continuity and contest on my on my board just as trigger words to remind myself that what we're, we're trying to achieve continuity and uh, as best we can and, con- and consistency and, and contest across across the game to try and try and move all that forward but yeah look it's really difficult to answer that if we if we people often hark back to the glory days of rugby. And when we look at some of those clips that are pop up on social media now of, of how brilliant rugby used to be with eight players launching themselves and trampling over anyone on the ground who might just have been in the way. And we're seeing injuries where players are clearly being concussed out cold, just get back up and carry on. Um, that was never safe. It might have been entertaining, but it wasn't safe. And that doesn't happen now because of the way that the game has evolved and the laws have changed and the refereeing of it and the, the concerns around player welfare. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question about how the, the game evolves over time and what people's perceptions of, of it are. But I would say, though, also that there were elements of the way the game used to be played that weren't even aesthetically pleasing. But one of the things that happens is YouTube is full of highlights. And so if you're, if your only understanding of what rugby looked like in the seventies, eighties and early nineties is a YouTube highlights reel, then you have created this fantasy perception. Mm-hmm. And so you'll find the try scored by, was it JPR Williams, 1974 or something, right? What do they call that try from the end of the world or something? Have I got that right? Yeah. That's my history. Like that, yeah. And it looks like this fantastic open, pure rugby, but the other 65 minutes of that match, or in fact, 23 minutes, the ball was in play were hideous, hideous. Because you know, there's so much of the game was wrapped up in scrums and walls and lineouts. I've got some stats actually. I'll share them in a moment. The 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 time spent in set pieces back then was incredibly high. Yet that's the thing we complain about now. Yeah. And, and so I don't think people have a actually a realistic assessment when they make this comparison. They're comparing the best of the old days, the good old days, to the current situations, worst of and. It's a very unfair comparison. So I think it's safer and it's actually, in my opinion, a lot nicer to look at. 
if there's a criticism I have of it now, it's that it's veered so far towards rugby league in terms of just like constant recycler position. And it could probably do with a slight adjustment back towards the center. I listened back to our podcast with John Dobson the other day, and I'm I'm more in the Dobson school of thought now is you want the heavies to have a little bit more influence maybe than they, than they do, but it's certainly way better than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I went back to look at some of the changes over time. 1963, Scotland versus Wales, Calcutta cup match. Sorry, no, obviously not Calcutta cup. Scotland versus Wales, 63. 111 lineouts in that game. <laughs> Average today, because at, is because the, at the, the time, yeah, because at the time, uh, Clive Rowland was the Welsh skipper realised that he could every time he got the ball he could just kick it out it's directly into touch and then we'd have another line out and that just kept going for 18 minutes apparently that the well the Wales 10 that day only received the ball twice now imagine imagine watching that um, and then soon after that the law was changed to make sure that you couldn't benefit from the line out from kicking it directly out um, and, there, and there, the game gets better as a result of those things but sometimes you have to go through that painful process like that painful incident even to therefore trigger something to change. And that's what we're, we're always looking at things like that as to what, what needs to change, how do we get there and all those sorts of things as we go through. But yeah, that's a, that's a great example of the glory Sorry. days of 111 lineouts. Imagine. So that's a, that's obviously extreme. In 1987 World Cup, average lineouts per match, 49. Yeah. Average. Sure. That's still then high, by 1990, By 1995, it drops to 38. Stays at 38 in 2003. 27 by 2011 and 24, 25 now. Scrums used to be, in 1987, 32 scrums per match, now down to between 12 and 14. And then malls was a similar number, like they used to be incredibly high. So there are now there are now six times more rucks than there, used to, than there are malls and, and scrums. Used to be more malls and scrums than they were rucks. <laughs> passes, passes have doubled. So you're seeing, you're seeing twice as much passing now than you did in 1987. And so the game has changed out of sight. But... You can find those clips where there were 12 passes in one move and they scored from their own post all the way to the other one. And you got that champagne rugby <laughs> you know, once in a once in every seven matches, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're both saying, just from hearing you both talking about it now, that you both feel that games actually improved as a spectacle. Um, if you look back, despite the, the player welfare element to it, the game actually, for, just from those stats alone, sound like it's actually a better game to watch overall. Yeah, yeah I mean, do you I, agree with that? I, I, well, I th- it's difficult because we weren't around that time. You always remember what you yeah. you always re- we were, remember what we you were, were involved yeah, we were, in and, and the and the and the great mm. the great stuff that I've refereed and been involved in both um, at different levels and what what we see on on TV now. And there's always going to be issues that people will find and and think it's better in this game versus that game. We've even seen it in the World Cup. We've had good games, reasonable games, and less good games. That's just that's the way rugby evolves with with so many people trying to do so many different things on the on the field. Um, we have to make sure that with the overall the game is in is in good health, and if we need to make changes, we look at what what can change, what what should change, um, and whether it's the right thing to do. Just just one other stat because I do love a bit of stats. <laughs> in 1987, there were 123 activity cycles per match average. So an activity cycle is from the start of a of a action to the end. So for instance, let's say a scrum put in till the next lineout, or the lineout till the penalties conceded or a penalty to the try, you know what I mean? It's a continuous Mm. period of play. 123 different activity cycles a match on average. It then drops to 107 in 95, 99 in 203, to 74 in 2011, to 70 now. So there are fewer activity cycles. 
but the average cycle length used to be 13 seconds. So on average, you'd see it play for 13 seconds before a break. It's now 36 seconds. So it's wow. almost threefold longer per activity. Yeah. And there are fewer of them. And 20% of them last more than a minute. So, so, so if I had to sum up the changes, the game has become considerably more continuous. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is because you will often see people, I know Eddie Jones has been quoted in the media, even recently, I've seen Gatland the same, John Dobson said it here, is that there's this push to make it ever more continuous. And maybe at some point that becomes detrimental, but it's already incredibly continuous. It's not It's not as though the sport has shifted more and more and more towards these stop-start games that favor these massively powerful guys. That's how it used to be. It's mm. not like that anymore. The numbers actually disprove the perception that some people come with through rose-tinted glasses in hindsight. And Keith, you've, you've touched on the fact that you want to still retain the rugby union part of the sport because mm. you do, it can become closer to a league format if you're not careful in that respect. Could be. No, and rugby league is a great game. It's great. Spect- yeah. It's a great spectator sport. It's a great, it's a great product for people to play. Um, we're, we are not rugby league. We're rugby union. And we have, we have all the elements that, that make rugby up. And people ask me, well, we need to, we need to simplify everything. Well, the best way to simplify it is to take some of those out. So tell me what we don't want anymore. If we don't want scrums, we'll take it out of the law book. If we don't want lineouts anymore, we'll figure out something else to do. And then all of a sudden it becomes very much like another sport um, that people don't want mm. to go down. So it's, it's always that debate we're going to have. And then just tell us about the process. So in other words, how does the process towards a law change actually happen? Where does it start embryonically? And how does it, and what process does it go through to potentially become a law change so it can start embryonically in a number of different places it can either be around what our data is telling us um, um or or from a union who's got um, an idea that they want to, to trial and, and do something or as part of the discussions that we have or we hear about we uh we kind of think well we need to do something about x y or z um and then we kind of figure out well what does that look like from a law change perspective is it a straightforward thing to do is it a is it complicated or is it if we do this is there a secondary impact on a different law so it becomes just a process to figure out what it what that change might look like um, and then we as world rugby or a union can we, we can either take it to the unions or a union can bring it to us to say we would like to trial this in in this competition this series of games we've got some at the moment in um in australia in in who are, who are running some in a, a relatively low level age great um relatively low level level of rugby but at a fairly decent standard uh, from a regional perspective in one of the regions down there where they're looking at advantage so they are one of the trials that they're they're running over a series of three weekends is around they're going to put a metric on advantage um they're going to say advantage will be called over when it's gone through four phases of play um so let's see what happens so so that we, we if it, somehow we end up putting into what we would call cause call a closed law trial so that we can test the thing out see what it tells us, see what the participants say about, see what the referees say about the thing um, and what the game data about that series of play tells us. And then it would, it would come back to us at World Rugby and say, look, we've this is the evaluation of the closed trial. We either agree, we put it through the governance process, so it goes to our rugby committees, it goes to our high performance, it goes to our community, it goes to our women's, it goes to our sevens committees to say, this is what we're thinking. Do we Do we agree to it? And then when it goes, to, so once it gets through that process, it will then go into a an open trial or what we call a global law trial. So for a period of time, we will have a global law trial around this particular area. The one that's going on at the moment from a global law trial is about the scrum engagement um, and breakfoot. 
So the hooker needs to have their foot forward in that break stance. At the moment, that is a two-year trial that's in law for everybody in the game. We will then evaluate those global law trials. Again, look at the data, see what the participants say. Has it solved the problem that it was set out to, to help solve? Um, and then we'll we push it back through the uh, the, the world rugby committees, council, um, executive, and, and council meeting, where all the representations from the unions around the world and the players and the player welfare um, representations and the referees are involved in those conversations. And then it's either agreed or not agreed to, and then it goes into law um, from from that point forward. So it's it's not we decide we put it in. It's very much not that. There's quite a thorough process, and of course. A thorough process sometimes means it's slower than people might like. Mm. But I think we would rather go through that process to make sure it's the right idea than say, we want to change this. And then two years later, we say, nah, it didn't work. We need to we need to change it back. Um, and I, I'm not sure. I think I could only think of one example where that did happen. And that was, I think Ross alluded to it before. There was a period in the mid-noughties where the sacking, uh, collapsing a mall was 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 going to be okay for a while. I'm not sure whether it ever got into the law book, but it was certainly trialed it from my experience at a reasonable level in England. And it it was such a bad experience for everyone. The player welfare benefit was on the other side that it came out very quickly. And and sometimes we have to trial these things to see if they work or sometimes to prove that they don't work. If that's mm. a double mm. negative, we may well see um, talking about the advantage um, trial that's happening in Australia. We might well see that that, has a brilliant impact, but it also might be a complete disaster. Um, my personal view, a personal view, is that what we might see is that players will, if we're going to have to put a number on it, it means the referee will have to call that number in real play. If the number is four, and then we're going back for the penalty or the scrum, and I say three, and the player hears that, they might just stop. Don't want it. We'll go back to therefore the advantage. Nothing's really happened. We, I've now forced me to blow my whistle and we're going to go back for the thing before, whatever it is. And then we're having another stoppage while we go back to that point and we kind of just wasted 30 seconds and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It might be one of those things, but we need to see it. We need to trial it somewhere just to see whether there are an, an, an intended consequence of something working or, or not working. If it works, mm. then brilliant. Goal line dropout is 50-22 um, were risks, but they've worked really well. Um, and everyone's bought into it, and it's created it's created a new dynamic to a game that we didn't know about, but we needed to test it to to, to make sure that it did work. Hmm. I was going to add to that also that the, the only so those committees that Keith speaks about there, so there's a high performance committee, there's a sevens, there's a women's, they are made up of delegates from the big test playing nations. They've got a player agents, well, they've got a few players actually on them. They're Again, they're pretty high powered, and I'll be honest, as a non-elite rugby player myself, intimidating <laughs> groups to sit on, because you are literally sitting there with Eddie Jones and Steve Hansen and Joe Schmidt was on it, Jack Nienaber would sit on it. So, the guys who understand the game, they're not, they're not. When the sport is not detached from its own game, the group mm -hmm. that makes those in between the lines decisions, if we can call them that, on turf decisions, is is pretty good. The only exception where they don't necessarily initiate is sometimes a union will come with a player welfare law request or suggestion. One example recently was through one of the player agencies in England, it was, it came to World Rugby's attention that the front rows at scrums were doing something called axial loading, where the opposing players were basically preloading their heads against one another in the, in the bind position so that when the engage call came, they'd slip off the head and create more force in the hit. 
Now that axle loading is very bad. Yeah. Because you're putting all that force of your head through another guy with seven guys. Well, okay, it's not seven. It'll be five guys behind you pushing onto you. So straight away, a law directive comes out. Axle loading will no longer be allowed. Directive gets sent to all the referees to look out for it, and you try and stop the practice straight away. So that's the other little, little let's call it the window. So Keith's spoken about all the laws coming in through the front door. Occasionally, you get one coming through the window for a reason like that. And that's the kind of one that you want to have done quickly because there's a real it has to be done. Risk a, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's almost like an emergency <laughs> meeting is convened with that group. They say, listen, this has come to our attention. In that specific one, I remember they got the front row forwards coaches from a handful of teams around the world to come in and talk about it. They say, all right, what's the best solution to this? What are the cues we give the referees, the match officials? Okay, it's done. Meeting's over, and it's basically a decision that's been made. Yeah, so I'm always intrigued to know what the most radical law change that you've had proposed to you. In other words, through those different channels that you have people talking to you, has there been one law change you think, yeah, that that's pretty radical? Um, or are these changes always quite subtle in terms of where you where they come through when they come through? Um, it's a good question. I'm not sure any jump out as being radical. I mean, I think there are some big ones in the past that mm. may have felt radical at the time, and it's the introduction of the Simbin was was a relatively straightforward process and radical at the time, but actually it made the game a better place uh, and made it refereeing it slightly easier. There was a, there was a window for a year or so when we were, we were at, we were given yellow cards, but they meant nothing. So for, if I was to caution a player for repeated infringements, I would show them a yellow card, but then nothing would happen. That was it. Then two yellows equals red. Um, and then a year later, the Simbin, the 10 minute temporary suspension Simbin comes in to go on the back, on the back of it. So that was a, Big radical change. Um, I think there are some over time that have, um, I think, introduced have, have created a b- big game. But it's not that you would jump. At, no one's going to say this is a this is a massive change in law, but actually had a big impact. Um, I, rem- I remember that when the scrum back foot law was moved back five meters. So when we had scrums, it used to be on the back foot. And then in two thousand and nine, that became five meters behind the back foot. Um, really easy to referee, really simple. Everyone could picture it, but it created then 10 meters of space for the backs mm. to then do something more something with it. So that's not radical, but it did have a, a big impact in how the game was played um, and created more opportunities for the eight back row pickup because they had more space to run into, um, dragging defenders in, creating gaps, more holes and all those sorts of things. So it's, I guess it's incremental change. And suddenly you get some of these that do have a um, a fairly... If, 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 over the long term, create some um, some really game positive things. Lifting in the line out, we talk about the carnage of, of line outs back in the seventies. And Phil Davis is our uh, director of rugby. Took his his glory days as a, as a Welsh international player. Um, line outs were carnage, and he would got elbows and feet all over the place. Now we've got quite. Since you allow lifting, you kind of create structure to it because players get lifted, they get brought down to ground, then we get them all formed, and then something happens off off the back of that. So those little changes over time have created more structure for the game to be played off the back of it. Um, we often we get representations you ask about f- potential future ones. People sometimes look back so that we can move forward. Um, the one that occasionally crops up is about the mark, which people, people I get two lots of representations about the mark. One we should get rid of it because it's, it's 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 archaic and doesn't really solve a problem anymore. 
Um, and other people say, well, we actually we want to go back to the mark as it was, which you could call a mark until 1979, I think it was, um, in your own half, not in your own 22. And people say, well, that would, that would stop all this box kicking stuff going on. Well, it's, it's worth a consideration. It could also create even more stop starts as kick goes up, it gets marked, then gets kicked back from a free kick marked there again and then everyone's like standing around waiting for somebody to not mark it um but <laughs> sometimes we, we may have to we may have to look at the look into the past to see what the future might look like mm. um so it's interesting what people might might think yeah i mean that's an interesting point where you talk about those sort of rules because a couple of things there you know you, you've said for instance the lineout rule i always thought that the the, the lifting in the lineout actually created more of a danger than having the lineout without lifting but you're right there is an element of structure to that which brings a safety element and actually looks quite spectacular from an entertainment perspective so mm. it kind of features both both <laughs> elements to it so we talked about, I know I talked about the example of the line out and scrum penalties before, but sometimes we introduce new law, and this is going to sound weird, for that thing not to happen. So the that's, so the 50-22 is a good example of that. The whole purpose of the 50-22 wasn't for them to happen. Mm. It, was to, it was to pull a defender out of the back line to create mm. space for people to run through. Um, so, so people say, well, how many 50-22s have there been? Well, so it's not the point. The fact that it's there as an option now for people to do. So we've actually created space. And also by doing that, we've created a, a real fan engagement piece because everyone loves the 50-22. Um, I've, yeah. I've got two boys and they, they the 50 is on. He's going to kick it. Um, we saw, a, we saw the, the, was it the Welsh number eight? Take a 50-22 from his own 10-meter line and kicked well, it. Well, it was an Australian lineout went over the top of it and the guy picked up this misthrown lineout pass and hoofed it upfield, 50-22. Massive momentum swing. I think yeah. Wales went on to score pretty soon after that. Yeah. And Australia had turned down a penalty that they almost certainly would have kicked. And so there's a massive momentum swing. So they are, when they happen, albeit infrequently, they are very uh, magnetic events. Mm. is it is is it i think the million dollar question from me is that is there a way of simple is that is the game capable of being simplified or is the rules just going to make it more and more complicated as we go along it's it's a brilliant question i've, I've got a, 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 a missive from phil davis who said that our, our, our task is to simplify the complex um which is, which is a which is a great great line to say and it's very difficult to to act on and deliver, but it's, it's always in the back of my mind um, as to how we, we get the law book that we've got to make it both simpler to referee, simpler to explain to people um, and simpler for, for to take the fan with us as we go through, but without destroying all those contestable areas and those issues, the facets of the game that we all love. Um, so that, that is a challenge. I think we can, we can do some, some work on, on how the laws are currently written Sometimes you have to look around what the law doesn't say rather than what it does say, and therefore you referee to you referee by omission. Um, so there's some some areas that we, we could probably tighten up on the wording and look at how things are written. Because if if in the cold light of day, as I'm watching a match, I get my law out and I'm having to read it three or four times to figure out what the words say, how it computes with what I'm seeing on field. Um, and that's from my armchair rather than running around. This is perhaps something we can do there. And I'm always open. Look, if people have ideas about how we could simplify laws without changing them and without changing the meaning, because I think Ross said a few minutes ago, people will always look for the gaps in the law. Um, so we could simplify it, but simplifying it actually creates more gaps. 
So we need to simplify it without changing it and being clear that um, some of those words, and that might mean that we need to put some laws back in so that we close some of those gaps that we've created by simplifying it, um, which I guess you go on this ever increasing, decreasing circle of hitting yourself, hitting yourself with the same argument on the way back. Um, I'm trying, trying to figure out how we do that. It's a, it's a complex, it's a complex game. It's a complex way to, to play it and to referee it. And therefore the, the laws that we've got aren't, inherently going to be difficult to do and how we simplify it um, is a tricky one. I think it's always more in the language that we use and how perhaps we explain it to people who don't know rugby. Um, and again, we have to, we've talked a lot about the game at the moment. We're always in our minds as world rugby, we're trying to get more people to play it. And how do we attract more people to come in while well, we have this complexity um, or we're looking at new markets to go into, how do we explain the game of rugby to a completely new market who doesn't get it? Um, mm. And that's tricky. So perhaps we need to look at other ways of doing it. We might have laws, but are there other things that we could do to make it easier? Could we use our social channels to explain laws and issues more, more easily? What's the referee looking for in this scenario type of thing? And to Kat's explain, look, we're looking from this point at that thing. There will also be things on the other side of that thing that might look different if you were over there. And, and how do yeah. we explain things like that to, to players is not easy. And that's the game we've got. And you touched on the fact that for the spectators, and I count myself as one of those spectators that often looks at a game and goes, I don't know what happened there. And I often think that if you had an on-screen logo or some explanation to say just a little guy sitting in a referee or somebody like that sitting in a box going, right, that was an offside, that was a forward pass, that was a you know a penalty there, you, you could literally have that flashing up so that people understood the game better because spectators that understand the game better enjoy it more in the end of the day so and, I think and, and there are factor. there are some really good examples around the world both for those in stadia um and those um on tv screen that those things are happening but mm. a are they accurate would be a question i would ask um sometimes i know i was a, a game a, a pre-world cup game in the uk obviously before the world cup um and i was looking at what the referee was doing and saying, I could see the signals. So referees have signals. If referees would use them, that would be brilliant because that helps. <laughs> that also helps. Um, but what was then flashing up on the screen that the penalty was for was just wrong. So whoever it was that was doing, pressing that button also needs to understand what's going on and, and do it. Um, there's a really, I spoke with a, a, a guy at one of the premiership clubs um, who is an active referee. He sits in the operations box um, at Leicester Tigers uh, with listening into the referee comms and as a referee, he knows what is being said. And when the, when the penalty comes and it's said, he presses the right button and the graphic and the explanation goes on the screen. Um, and yeah. It's a fantastic job. People in the stadium can see it. It's, it's great. But if you don't have the right person doing that thing, pressing that button and understanding it, that's not going to help that process. But that, there's all manner of ways I'm sure we could look using technology. With, I mean, that, that would be great. Until the, I mean, I yeah, think about that, that that would be a brilliant in television to be able to see that. You know, I mean that's and there's two levels you could do it at. The one is just to say the penalty gets given at a at a breakdown and now okay, mm. holding or not rolling away, not releasing, whatever the case is. That's fine. At least now you know, but the game's going to continue almost straight away. Yeah. There'd be an, I think there'd be another opportunity once in a while when there is a stoppage. Let's say there's a stoppage from that breakdown to have someone very good at explaining something technical actually give you even more detail as an explanation. So mm. there's a reason and then there's an explanation. You know who does it well is if you watch American football 
and they don't do it very often. They do it when there's a contested call and then they'll have a referee join the commentary and he mm -hmm. will explain to you exactly what they're looking at to decide whether this is a fair catch or not. Yeah. And he'll talk about now you can see he's got possession of the ball, but now you must survive the ground. That's what they're going to be looking at. And you get insights that you wouldn't otherwise get. So it is an area no. where rugby, I think there's a lot of dead time in rugby that possibly could be used a little bit more effectively to make the game more accessible. So it's how you find, you just mentioned having the right person doing that, the right people mm. doing that to explain it with the credibility to, to back it up. And normally those people are also part of the, the officials team who are involved in the games. And, and there will be times where we're seeing something from one angle and the referee is seeing something else and we will disagree with that. Um, that's rugby. We see that every single second of every single match of people disagreeing with match official decisions. Um, and therefore how that comes across and how that's presented on cameras, it would be a challenge for that. We, we see it in some of the footage that we have here. I don't know what, um, what you see in, on TV in South Africa, but we certainly have some, some either recently retired or people who are actively involved in the game who are part of commentary teams who jump in and explain things, but often in explaining it, it can be, look, this is what the law says. And that that's what the decision was. It's it's pretty dry, rather than actually the the high those high profile incidents are the ones where there's controversy and they'll there therefore be opinion and therefore be interpretation, which that person may not be comfortable doing that, given that they might be an active active still actively involved in those circles themselves. So it's, it's it's a great de debate to have, and and how we square that circle is is one that I think and we've we've all got to keep doing because we need to keep explaining stuff to people. But one of the, I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with a, with a football, um, some some football fans. They have no idea how football referees referee their game. They don't know. They don't hear from them. Um, in rugby, the referee is mic'd up. Um, we hear those conversations. Sometimes we hear commentators talking over those conversations. So it would be nice to hear that hear those conversations because if we hear it, we then can understand the process that they have made to get that decision that that how they have made that decision on field and 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 their rationale in real time that happens all the time referees constantly talking and explaining their decisions um and they're um they're they are on mic so you can hear those conversations uh, and that's i think that is good for the game and it's a, a credit to our sport that we've um that we can do that without other verbal things cropping up on that mic as well let's say um, and we often have commentators having to apologize for language that uh, that players have used as well but on the whole it's, it's it's pretty much broadcast friendly how many laws are there in rugby the a rugby union do you know oh, oh i can answer that one it's 20 21 laws well there's 21 law headings there's 21 law law headings. Yeah, that's as far as i'm going to go don't there's, ask me the obvious question next there's 21 <laughs> chapters so like law nine foul play Oh, I think I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, there's, 20, there's obviously there's 21 sub, in total. Sub clauses to all of those different chapters. Yeah, of course. Well, so. I mean, then within foul play, there's nine point three point four one. There's nine point yeah. So, okay. so I, there's I, a I lot. Don't know yeah. Law nine's got twenty four clauses. Twenty five. No, thirty clauses. And yeah, Keith, so my, my my final question to you is, and this is a a sort of more existential question: Do you think that the game and the laws that are in place at the moment prevent a referee from create help for in other words undue bias in a game i mean we when we here in south africa hear that wayne barnes is for instance refereeing a game there's a belief that we can't win because every decision is going to go against us is, is there do you are you confident that there is not that much leeway for the referee to be able to influence a game based on his own likes and dislikes ah, that's, a, that's a question um look, <laughs> 
this is where I go. This is a, I stick to my referee, my my laws role title and a refereeing one. The, the the laws of the game are there forever, and it sh- and referees should apply the law fairly. That's in the playing chapter, um, and and with equity from both sides. Um, so in, I'd like to say the answer is yes to that question. Referees should be refereeing that game as fairly as they are. They are professional athletes. They're, it is in nobody's interest for a referee to go out and referee only one side of any game. Um, there are a million factors that go into how uh, how games are refereed. Um, the laws that I'm responsible, so I'm responsible for the laws, not how it's refereed. So I'll stick to, to the, the laws are have have elements that cover both sides of every situation. This is why the law book is as, is as complex and as difficult as it as it is, because where we have a tackle, we have responsibilities of the ball carrier and the tackler and people who are arriving into that to cover everyone else. So everyone everyone is covered by what happens in that in that specific issue, and that's the same for every element of the game. Of course, when when you put humans involved in decision making processes, um, there there are all the elements that go into how those laws that we've got in the book are read, interpreted in that particular moment in in any game, and that will differ from game to game. Um, and and the word I I'm not a fan of is consistency, and I, I and the reason I don't like the word consistent when it's aimed at match officials is that Ross just talked about some of the numbers involved in, in our game. We saw in one of the World Cup, so one one team made 250 tackles. If we double that in the game, so let's 500 tackles in a game, none of those tackles are consistent. There are different players involved at different contexts of the game, in different parts of the pitch, in different weather conditions, with different score lines. Yet the, the, the game and people outside of it want one person to be consistent in everything that they do, which is why I don't like the word consistent because we're asked to be consistent in something that's not consistent. Um, but the approach they take in all those different areas of the game should be a consistent flow through. Um, and when people look at, at data, now we're all, everyone's, everyone can, can watch and rewind games and you can go through these things. Um, if those biases come out, whatever those biases look like, it will be clear on, on review. It will be clear on trends that are done over a, uh, a referee's season career as to where they are and that they're, they're being a, they would be addressed as they as they are whether it's the bias might be towards the tackler rather than the the ball carrier that's the bias we're talking about not whether the player is wearing a green shirt or a red shirt um so there are different biases involved at different points and that's part of a professional game the analysis that those guys go into about their game guys and girls Sorry, uh, that they, that goes into their preparation, their analysis of their own games is is off this planet, and I, I I don't know if you've spoken to any of them about what they go through, um, but it's immense that they go through and the prep that they they put into the game to make sure that they are refereeing as best as they can for the game that's put in front of them. Mm. Just a, I, I just had a thought of a final question. I keep on saying it's my final question, but this really is my final question. Is it possible to tier laws based on the level of the game? In other words. The elite game has a set of laws that are different from the. I mean, there there are some changes, obviously, the further yeah. you go down the leagues. But is there a case for making that a little bit more um, in the in the game itself? Because there are obviously changes compared elites versus under eighteen schoolboys, for instance. Yeah. So that that's a good question. That that is a conversation we actually I think we need to have with the whole of the game. Um, I get people saying to me all the time, why don't we, we should give up on this elite community game. We're playing the same game. We're not. 
Um, and we haven't since 1999. Let's just be clear on that. We haven't had this had a law book that's common for everybody since then. And that was the introduction of the television match official. Um, and we've had we've got differences in law about sub numbers, depending on whether you're on playing international and, and squad size beneath that. We have variations about age grade. Um, we have we have things like the water carriers issues at the moment. That's not an issue for us in the community game. It's specifically written into law for the elite game to deal with a, a slightly different problem up there. How much more we want to go into that, I actually don't think um, the the laws are would be that different if they were for the community game versus the elite game. How it's refereed is possibly is probably the conversation that we we would we would we would have rather than the laws themselves. I don't know whether there are specific examples that you've got in your mind from a, a game law perspective where we would say in the community game, you can do this, but in the elite game, you could do that. Mm. I'm not, I, I can't, not, nothing jumps out at me as saying those are things we should do. How it's refereed on the, on the field when you've got one match official versus four, five, six, seven, eight is, is a refereeing guideline for, for perhaps the community game and the elite game. So I don't know what, what, what are your views on that? That's my I mean, view. I, I, I don't, I, th I think the bigger difference is the quality and the speed at which the game is played at the yeah. elite level compared to the community. And so the same laws work because the players execute things within that law framework differently. So for instance, if you take the breakdown, like t talk to us about like exactly what the sequences of things a referee looks at as a breakdown, because it relates to another point that I want to make regarding your previous answer, but like there's a tackle made. Now, what does the referee have to look at in order over the course of well, the next one and a half seconds? Okay. okay. So we've, we've got ball carrier release. Yeah. Not necessarily. Again, it depends on the, on the context of the tackle. Let's say a normal tackle in the middle of the field. Priority one would be tackler release and allow the ball carrier to do something with it. Secondly, ball carrier, do something with it, place, pass, put the ball on the ground, three arriving players. Mm -hmm. um, so that that would be the normal process. But if we've no. got a kick chase all the way into the 22, and therefore we have a tackle where we've got attackers chasing that down, the priority flips. So I want the ball, the players on their on their the ball carrier needs to do something before the tackle player does. But that's just context of situation. Yeah. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that there are about four or five things that the referee has to assess in really quick time. Yeah. In the elite game, that stuff's happening within a second. In the community game, it's maybe taking two seconds. So the same laws actually work, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Because the everything's just a little bit heightened. And the other thing is that in the elite game, the margin for error is so small. If I'm half a second or half a step too late, or if I come around in order to enter that ruck from a properly onside position, I'm not winning it. So they push the boundaries mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think the community player does. So the way the law is written actually already works. You don't have to simplify or change it because the caliber... <laughs> And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. The, mm -hmm. the caliber and the way the athlete is playing it is just so different and it allows for that to happen at different levels. That would be my interpretation of it. But the reason I asked about the breakdown is that there'll be 200 to 250 of those a match. So that's already a thousand decisions the referee has to make. And you only see the 18 to 25 penalties they give. So you see the decisions they've chosen to take by blowing on a whistle. You don't see the 900 decisions that they've chosen not to make by not blowing on a whistle. So the job they have is enormously complex because they're assessing and, so many different things. And that's where I wonder whether the the way to improve match officiating is to split the role slightly. You know, in the NFL, I don't know how many they have. They have five, what are they, five referees on the field? Yeah. And they each have a very specific role. 
I don't know whether the future of rugby in the simplicity will, the way you asked about, can you make it simpler? Mm. I don't know if you can make it simpler for the refs by giving them specific roles that one person just looks at offside. One person looks at rack entries. One person looks at all other elements. I, I don't know. What do you think of that? It, it's an interesting one. I know that's been tried. You, you guys are in, in Cape Town. Your, your, yeah. your chums up the road in Stellenbosch did trial that. I remember being there um, early 2000s on exchange there and watching a game where they had two referees on the field looking at there. I think they did, they divvied it up at that point with you look at one in one half of the pitch, you look at the other half of the pitch. And we yeah. talked about those, the consistency issue. And I think that was the main issue when you have yeah. two officials on the same pitch trying to be consistent, that's practically impossible, which creates different problems. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great challenge as to how, how we do that. I mean, you talked about one for offside. We've, we, some people say, give them a flag as well. And they can, judge when the ball leaves the field at the side and we could call them assistant referees but then you get the the clamor of the assistant referees refereeing the game instead of the referee um and what is clear and obvious to one person from one angle is perhaps not as clear and obvious to somebody else 40 meters away um and we're talking we talk about offside when does that offside line stop being an offside line when the scrum half lifts the ball from where it is in that ruck if I'm on the other, if I'm the assistant referee on the other side of the field, 40 meters away, I literally can't see whether that ball has been lifted, and therefore that back line is is no more, or it should still be in there. Mm. It, so the it's it's a good idea, but I don't I don't think it would solve the specific problems that people think it might. And mm. again, how do we try, how do we how do we take that idea? We need to try it somewhere, and and we're looking at a series of law laboratories around the world where we might take these these ideas and say, look, can we just, can we run these in a sort of trial lab conditions just to see what happens? Um, and then before it goes into the closed, closed law trial process, and we're working with a couple of people on a couple of things at the moment, um, away from the public domain to, to see on some of those, to see, I guess, trying to help some of that nucleus of an idea question you asked me earlier, Mike, to see if we can form, figure out what the question actually looks like um, by, by trialing some stuff already. Keith Lewis, thank you very much for your time. I know you've got a massive job ahead of you for the next couple of years, but it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. So thank you very much for that. Thanks very much. I, I, I've alluded to it before. Right, if people, listeners have ideas and suggestions, let us have them. No, all ideas are a good idea. Well, the patron, I mean, this this will go up as always on Patreon, and that patron community will definitely respond and interact. So I'll, I'll forward any questions that our patrons have or suggestions that our patrons have to you. So that'll that'll definitely happen.
Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.